on to more serious matters, uh, Catholic art and Catholic writing, which will encompass the period from about 1850 to about 1960-1970. So, I'll begin by saying if you had attempted prophecy around the year 1850, you might have predicted that the Roman Catholic Church was entering a long period of dominance in Irish life. Paul Cullen's appointment as Archbishop of Armagh the preceding year was a point in that direction. You might have further predicted that the tragedy of the now ending famine notwithstanding, rising levels of education and middle-class prosperity, together with Ireland's long literary tradition, would result in an increasing number of Irish writers emerging over the next century. You would have been correct on both counts. A logical corollary would have been the assumption that Ireland would produce significant Catholic writers. The contention of this paper is that you would have been wrong to draw this conclusion. That while Ireland in the century after 1850 would indeed produce writers from Catholics, it did not produce specifically Catholic writers. I would further state that on the contrary, Carmichael's structures produced a significant body of Irish writing that was deeply critical of his dispensation. I will instead use the term Catholic, a shorthand for Roman Catholic, in this paper. To illuminate what I mean by a Catholic writer, I would use Colin Cursor Bryan's description of Francois Mauriac. Quote, he was one of those rare people who from the beginning are incapable of drawing any dividing line between their religion and their emotional lives, or even between the supernatural and the mundane. On the one hand, the faith penetrated deep into his life. In particular, the practice of frequent examinations of conscience brought his intellect completely and forever under the sway of Catholic morality as it was taught to him in his mother's home. Quote, a Catholic writer, as opposed to a writer who happens to be a Catholic, is therefore one whose literary output is permeated and dominated by his or her religion in the manner of Moriac. While Ireland's closest neighbours, England and France, both grappling with rampant materialism and secularisation, did produce significant Catholic writers in this period, Ireland paradoxically did not. It is ironic that English society, often dismissed as lost to any true religion or any true religious values by Irish Catholics, should have produced so many Catholic writers of note between the mid-19th and 20th centuries. G.K. Chesterton, Valerie Belloc, Graham Greene, Ephraim Wall, among others. A further paradox is that many of Ireland's arguably greatest ever proper writers, from Stoker, Singh, Shaw, Wilde and Yeats, you see some of them here on the, on the slide, were all born around or shortly after the mid-19th century into the Church of Ireland. I'm not claiming, of course, that they wrote from a Protestant perspective, merely that they were not products of Catholic Ireland. The one indisputably great writer born a Catholic in this era, James Joyce, not alone belonged to a younger generation, but could hardly be described as a Catholic writer in the manner of Moriac. Now, this is not an original insight on my part. Writing in the Jesuit periodic of the Irish Monthly in 1948, M.J. McAllen stated, quote, Ireland is the most Catholic country on earth, and it is natural that the majority of her writers should be Catholics. Yet, through causes that have their roots deep in history, this is a comparatively recent phenomenon. Even in the 19th century, 
A majority of the names of our, in our literary history are those of non-Catholics. As witness Mariah Edgeworth, Lady Morgan, Lover, Lever, Davis, Mitchell, Ferguson, Allingham, and many more. Even with the turn of the century and the coming of the Celtic Renaissance, there is the same preponderance. Big names, Yeats, Singh, Lee, Stanley Shepard, Lady Gregory, Douglas Hyde, were all non-Catholics. Yet in this instance, the use of religious labels can be misleading, at least for strangers. We who are familiar with their work know that the raw material of most of the writers of the Celtic Renaissance was Gaelic and therefore Catholic in its origins and essence, unquote. MacManus's argument suffers from two interrelated weaknesses. His list of big names excludes major Protestant writers such as Wilde and Shaw to maintain the second strand of his argument that the raw material of Irish writing was Gaelic and therefore Catholic. Not many people today would accept that the use of Irish folk material by Protestants resulted in their literature being essentially Catholic. Another irony was the fact that a good deal of the collection of folk material with, uh, with sorry, uh, the um, folk material in 19th century Ireland was undertaken by Protestants such as Sir William and Lady Wilde, whose work mother would have a profound influence on Bram Stoker. Eamon Nolan, in her 2007 survey, Catholic Emancipations, agrees that Ireland, the Ireland with which we are concerned, provides, quote, few examples of the Catholic novel as it is generally understood in a wider European context, unquote. Uh, although she also states, quote, there is an unrecknowledged Catholic tradition in 19th century Irish letters, unquote. What emerges from Eamon Nolan's survey is the degree to which 19th century Irish writing is concerned with the broad political situation of the island of Ireland at that time, especially that which emerged in the era sandwiched between the two key texts identified by Nolan as being of particular importance. Gerald Griffin's The Collegians, 1829, and Charles Kickham's Not Nagao, 1873. By the way, Not Nagao remained the most popular Irish novel up to 1980s when I think you were so to it. The struggle over land was at the heart of these politics and this writing, and it featured uh, prominently in George Moore's A Drama in Muslim, 1886, in which the fearful Irish gentry, Catholic and Protestant, regard the common threat of the activities of the land league with grim apprehension. If the peasantry do not pay their rents, Ruin will engulf their aristocratic way of life. Their limited social horizons are bounded by the constrictions of the Dublin social scene, centred on the Lord Lieutenant's Falls at Dublin Castle. Yet even as Moore was writing this book, the Land Acts 1881-1909 were beginning a process of allowing the tenants to buy their land that would transfer ownership of the Irish countryside from a predominantly Protestant uh, landlord class to a mass of largely Catholic Irish farmers. Reflecting this transformation, the world depicted by Moore, with its sectarian, social, and economic tensions relating to the ownership of land, rapidly disappeared from Irish fiction. Bram Stoker is a key writer of this tra transition. Of all the crop of largely Church of Ireland writers born around the mid-19th century, Stoker spent more time than most in Ireland, 31 of his 64 years. He was also more engaged with Irish life than most of his emigrant contemporaries, articulating clear religious, social, 
and economic ideas about Ireland's development from the time of his auditorial address to the Historical Society of Trinity College Dublin in 1872, at the age of 25, to his article on the World's Fair in Dublin in 1907. These ideas were probably at the Snake's Pass, you see it here on the slide, is one novel set in Ireland, published in 1890. It would also, by the way, anticipate important aspects of George Bernard Shaw's John Bull's Other Island. <coughs> While the Snake's Pass shares some of Moore's themes, especially the primacy according to the origin of land, Stoker injects a development dynamic which is unusual if not unique in this line of Irish fiction, under which the application of capitalism technology will transform the sasses of the Irish countryside into a fairyland. Stoker believed that an end to sectarian division and political extremism were key to Ireland's long-term development, the prospects for which he saw as being particularly bright. It could be argued that his economic ideas only became mainstream in the Ireland of the 1960s, and his political religious prescriptions reached the maturity in the Good Friday Agreement of 1998. Religious reconciliation is a key theme of the snake's past, and attracted favourable comment from the Jesuit father Stephen J. Brown in his 1919 volume, Fiction in Ireland, his sole reservation being Stoker's portrayal of a priest. Quote, there is no bigotry, no bias, no vulgar stage Irishism. We cannot consider Father Peter a true type of Irish priest. Unquote. To the writers who followed Stoker, Joyce especially, the largely rural concerns of their 19th century predecessors survive only as an echo. With the land accident taking care of the issue that had convulsed the Irish countryside, Irish writers could focus on more personal and uh, more personal agenda in an increasingly urban setting. In Britain, the 1890s were a period of rapid and the song exciting change. And you can see here the famous yellow book uh, of the early 1890s and Aubrey Beardsley's um, uh, illustration for Wilde's Salome. So you have this extraordinary period of decadence at the end of the course of Wilde's conviction in 1895. Bram Stoker's worldly and crashing down around him, as his employer, Sir Henry Irving, failed to adapt to this changing world after the middle of the decade, as a result of which his Lyceum theatre collapsed, leaving Stoker unemployed. As part of the then United Kingdom, Ireland was not immune to these changes. Roy Foster's Vivid Faces of 2014 is subtitled The Revolutionary Generation in Ireland, 1890-1923. In Foster's view, the Ireland of that era contained a vital minority of people who did not hold with an unquestioning spirit to the inherited state of things. Free of the need to assert the most fundamental rights, the Irish intellectuals and writers could afford to address more esoteric and personal issues. To quote Foster, other personal documents indicate a slate of ideological preoccupations which extend beyond 1948-style romantic nationalism powerful though that impulse is. Secularism, socialism, feminism, suffragism, vegetarianism, and anti-vivisectionism pulsed through the Bohemian circles of Dublin and even of Waterford Court in the decade before 1916. Sometimes these pulses coexist with sacrificial ultra-Catholicism and old-style feminism, but they may also compete or conflict with them." Unquote. In 1897, towards the end of a decade of two important contrasting books were published by Irish-born writers. First, in May of the year, 
Ken Bram Stoker is Dracula. Religion features a Dracula. Indeed, it could be argued that its central terror is that of losing one's soul, a challenging concept for a modern audience. While the Count's stature as a Latin-day Antichrist derived from Stoker's Protestant Puritan upbringing, the symbols and instruments of Catholicism, ubiquitous in the Ireland of his youth, are also important elements of the novel. They may contain a vampire, but ultimately it is modernity that does it. The new technology of the era, repeating rifles, motorboats, typewriters, phonographs, coiled cameras, will be deployed against Count Dracula, whose medieval undead powers will be brought to love by information technology, coolly administered by a woman, Mina Harper. After Dracula, Stoker will morph into an Edwardian writer, more concerned with the geopolitics of the Balkans than Ireland, and pushing new technological frontiers such as high-powered motor cars and aerial warfare. The other significant novel published by an Irish foreign novelist in 1897 was Ethel Lillian Voynich's Gadfly. Both Dracula and the Gadfly are each sometimes claimed to be the most popular Irish novel of all time. Born Ethel Lillian Gould to English parents in Cork in 1864, Voynich's sojourn in Ireland was short. Following her father's death, six months after she was born, her mother returned to England with her daughters. As a young woman in London, she studied Russian under the exiled revolutionary known as Sergius Stepanek. The Russian's friendship with Bram Stoker earned him a chapter in Stoker's permanent, sorry, personal reminiscences of Henry Irving, and it is possible that Stoker and Voynich knew each other through this common connection. Given the brevity of her sojourn in Ireland and her English heritage, some might query her Irish credentials, which she is consistently described as an Irish writer by sources such as the BBC and the Irish Times, and has an entry devoted to her in the Dictionary of Irish Biography. I've one down on the Gadfly, and uh, on the screen, what you see there is an illustration from uh, a Soviet edition of the novel. Could be seen as being in the tradition of Matthew Lewis's The Monk, 1796, whose central character, Ambrosio, could have been a good or even a great man had he not the misfortune of being born a Catholic. <laughs> the development of Voynich's novel follows a similar path. In the Italy of the 1840s, a pious young student, Arthur Burton, is progressing towards the priesthood in the Pisa Seminary uh, under the care of his director, Canon Montanelli. His family background is complex. The Burtons, ship owners of London and Italy, are staunch Protestants and conservatives, but the widowed head of the house marries the pretty Catholic governess of his older children, who produces the son, Arthur. When both parents apparently die, Arthur is allowed to indulge his mother's Catholicism in an extremely pietistic form, under the wing of the strangely affectionate but troubled Monsignor Antonelli, who is entertaining dark thoughts of sin and defilement at the end of the first chapter. The reason for these curious musings is then revealed. Arthur is the product of an adulterous affair between his mother and Antonelli. Learning this for the first time, Arthur's reaction is to smash a crucifix with a hammer, symbolic of the abandonment of his religious faith. This being the period of the Italian Risorgimento, he throws his lot in with the revolutionaries, trying to dry up the Austrians and unify Italy, but whose ideas are anathema to the Catholic Church. The baseness of that church is laid bare 
who not to let his successor instead of the summary, breaks the seal of the confession to betray revolutionaries to the Austrians. Mantovelli is elevated to the position of cardinal of the more liberal Pope, which delights some of the radicals, but not Gemma, a hardcore revolutionary with whom Arthur is in love. Events career towards a climatic ending in which Arthur, now revolutionary leader nicknamed Gadfly, is captured by the Austrians and sentenced to death. He could be saved by the intervention of Cardinal Antonelli. In a blasphemous parallel with Golgothotic sacrifice, Arthur insists that Antonelli choose between, between him and his own son and his position in the church. And here you see a still from a Russian movie of this confrontation between them with the crucifix as you see prominent on, on the pillar. Uh, Antonelli finally chooses the church and the sets of Arthur's execution, which is hardly botched. Before going publicly insane in the cathedral, appalled at the terrible sacrifice he has made, a sacrifice which parallels that at the heart of the Christian religion. He smashes the host on the floor of the cathedral in a pathetic echo of Arthur's earlier smashing of the crucifix, but also an inversion of the miraculous powers granted to the host by Bram Stoker and Dracula. Montanelli dies of object heart immediately afterwards and proclaims. What Voynich has achieved is not just a rationalist's deconstruction of the Christian, specifically Catholic religion, but a positive evil towards which such beliefs lead in her view. Together with its heroic revolution characters, this probably accounts for the book's great success in the Soviet Union, where it sold millions of copies uh, and inspired uh, film and television adaptations. Dmitry Shostakovich's score for the 1955 film *Gatsby* has proved enduringly popular. Its romance section of this use was used as the theme music for the 1983 TV series *Riley as a Spies*, based on exploits of Voynich's reputed lover, a Russian with an adopted Irish name. Around the same time as *The Gatsby* was being published, Patrick Lafcadio Hearn, you heard about him earlier from Stephen was approaching the end of his life in Japan and musing on the manner in which the Catholic faith had brought fear into his childhood. Her, a product of an Irish father and an Ionian Greek father, spent most of his childhood being cared for great aunt, a Catholic convert from the Church of Ireland in Dublin, as you see up there, 73 uh, Upper Leeson Street, around the corner from where I live, before we sent Usher, which you all know, a Catholic boarding school close to this here in Durham. His great aunt seems to have had a relaxed attitude with religion, which was not shared by cousin Jane, a visitor to the household. One day, young Patrick Lafcadio asks her who God really was, provoking a lecture on hell, key portion of which you're now going to hear. Now, this is something of an experiment. We're going to see if this is a reading by an actor. We'll see if the audio system works. doesn't seem to be, um, so maybe I'll just read it myself. Um, she stooped and lifted me upon her knees, and after looking all about the room, fixed her eyes in mine with such curiousness that I was frightened. Then she asked, my child, is it really possible you do not know who God is? I remember answering, no. God who made the world, the beautiful sky, the trees, the birds, you do not know this? No. 
Do you not know that God made you and your father and mother and everybody and I who am talking to you? No. Do you not know about heaven and hell and that God made you in order that you should be happy in heaven if you are good? No. The rest of the conversation has faded out of my mind, except the words, and be sent to hell to be buried alive in fire forever and ever, always burning, burning, always never forgiven, never. Think of the pain of fire to burn forever and ever. The picture of the universe gave me a shock that probably preserved it in memory. I can still see the face of the speaker as she said these words, the horror upon it, the pain, and, and then she burst into tears. I know not why we kissed each other, and I remember nothing more of that day. But somehow from that time, I had never liked my so-called cousin as before. She was kinder to me than any other being, but I felt an instinctive resentment towards her because of what she told me. It seemed monstrous, ugly, wicked. She became for me a person who thinks horrible things. My words had been horrible enough before. She made it worse. I did not doubt what she said, and yet I was angry because she had said it. <coughs> After she went away in the spring, I hoped she would never come back. The slide, by the way, you see if there was taken a performance of my play, Gothic Horror, The Double Daunting of the Afghanistan, which was produced a few times in Dublin recently, most recently in uh, 2015. Now, um, James Joyce's portrait of the, sorry, uh, this is to my knowledge the earliest account of the rejection of Catholic teaching in an Irish childhood by an Irish writer. It anticipates the masterful sermon in hell and James Joyce's A Portrait of the Artist's Young Man, 1916, and a line of Irish fiction that stretches to the present day. I am not incidentally claiming that Hearn influenced Joyce. He could not have done so as Hearn's text was part of an unpublished draft autobiographical writing that I found while I was researching my Hearn biography in the 1980s, which also incidentally brought me here to a push up. They are, in a sense, parallel reactions to the Irish Catholicism of Europe. James Joyce's portrait is the outstanding work of this line of Irish fiction, but is so well known that I do not intend dealing with it in detail, preferring instead to use my limited time to explore some lesser known works, such as Michael Farrell's Thy Tears Might Cease. Seventeen years younger than Joyce, the early chapters of Farrell's book depict provincial Catholic Ireland of the Edwardian era, as opposed to the late Victorian world of the portrait. Also, my former colleague, Ambassador Daniel Hall, will deliver a paper later in the conference, specifically on James Joyce and Irish Catholicism. Now, one thing that unites Arthur Burton of the Gadfly, Stephen Dedalus of the portrait, uh, Hearn's beautiful self, and Mark and Matthew Riley of the Jews and Seas, is that they all started out as pious Catholics in their youth, but progressed to various forms of alienation from that religion. They all attended Catholic boarding schools or seminaries, which profoundly affected their development. In the case of Hearn and Farrell, it was so-called junior seminaries, secondary schools run by diocesan priests, where, while the majority of boys were not expected to have vocations for the priesthood, nevertheless acted as feeder establishments for the senior seminaries. Later, Farrell would, att would attend Blackrock College in Dublin, the perspectives of which promised a sound English education. Despised by Riley as both politically slave-hearted and clarity-orientated. 
Farrell may have had a point. Only a handful of more nationalistically minded boys, not including a young Edmund or uh, Edmund de Valera, ignored the college president's instruction to raise their caps and cheer when Victoria passed by Blackrock College and her 1900 visit to Ireland. Similar attitudes were evident in the late Victorian era at the exclusive Jesuit from Plumbusburg College, dismissed by Francis Hackett in his later autobiographical novel, The Green Lion, 1936. Quote, thus the greater glory of the <coughs> became, in effect, the greater glory of suburbia. The reputation of Farrell's book has declined somewhat since it was published posthumously to great acclaim in 1963, but it remains a landmark of Irish fiction and it usually features in the top 10 greatest novels of all time. It is of particular interest to me as, like myself, Farrell was from Carlo, the fiction of Glenn Kelly in the book, attended Notbreak College, you see a photograph of there, um, the fictional, uh, attended Notbreak College, the fictional Don Slane of that year's Mind Cease, and later studied at Trinity College Dublin. Now, Craig was spun off from Carlo College as a standalone secondary boarding school in 1847. One of the features of Farrell's novel is this minute description of the complex class as well as religious fault lines that crisscrossed Redmond died pre-World War I Ireland. Um, his savage hatred of the faithful brothers who controlled his primary education, in reality the Christian brothers, is based as much on class as on religion. The young Martin Riley is very much in love with his religion. He agrees with his uncle when he states, quote, Mark my words, you will all find one day that God and his religion are the only things of any value in this world, quote. He remembers with pleasure being placed as a small boy in the great revolving barrel, which was the only means of communication that the nuns of the crucifixion convent, in reality of Port Clares, had with the outside world, and being fussed over by the nuns, a practice that continued uh, in my own day. Later as an older boy, the experience of serving Christmas Mass in the Crucifixion Convent induces a form of religious ecstasy. Quote, when the, when the consecration came and prostrated on the steps with the bell ringing beside his hand, he looked up at the host, held above follower on his head. It was from a heart full of happiness and adoration that he murmured, my Lord and my God. He knelt before Father Reardon for communion, and when he received the wafer on his tongue, he thought that this was the best communion he had ever made. That never again would it be necessary to go to confession before communion, because he would never again have any sins to blot out his state of grace. Quote. These feelings, however, do not last. And in the words of his friend and editor Monk Gibbon, Farrell's novel quote, indicates a violent revulsion from religion. Quote, well, Gibbon also believed Farrell himself, like his fictional character, remained in some measure Catholic in spite of his repudiation of Catholicism. Unlike Voynich, Farrell and Gibbon's words was very far from being malignant settlements. Much of the drafting of that year's Marxist seems to be done in the 1930s and is also flavored with the political disillusionment that followed the actuality of Irish independence. However, the, the, the mainstream of the emerging Catholic middle class was more concerned with respectability than revolution, uh, as evidence. Just very quickly say a word about this slide. This is not by work between 1909 and 1910, just a few years before Michael Farrell goes to that big. And the young chap 
In the central row on the right-hand side is the young Kevin O'Higgins, who would later uh, be a very important minister in the Irish Free State before his assassination by Republicans in 1927. Um, however, the, main, the mainstream of the emerging Catholic middle class was more concerned with respectability of the revolution as evidenced by the cartoons shown in this slide from the Leprechaun 1913 and the Leaf 1922. And you can see in the Leprechaun you have a woman with a ballot box and, and the caption saying, when she gets it, what would she do with it? And the answer is you paraffin underneath a bomb and the city blazing in the background. This was what's going to happen if you give women the vote. Um, and then the, the, the cartoon of the leader, this is just two, two weeks after the Irish Treaty was signed, and you see the, the new free state with the clean room brushing away the black man with uh, jazz, uh, jazz music, uh, the daily press, English novels, and so on. And uh, you have a new Ireland, the soul of Ireland, kind of rising uh, in the background. In Joyce's portrait, Stephen Dedalus hears the constant voices of his father and his masters, urging him to be a gentleman above all things, and urging him to be a good Catholic above all things. The opening paragraphs of Jesus Francis provide further illustration of Catholic middle class social values in an Edwardian county town. For example, is preoccupied with preparations for the forthcoming farmers and cricket balls, as well as the forthcoming town bazaar. She takes comfort from the belief that her family are citizen merchants, echoing the comments of John Redmond at a whole world meeting in the town hall. This is a world removed from the turbulent rural Ireland of the second decade. There's a throwback to the novel in the struggles of this earlier period in the character of the old Fenian, Bernard Burns, who is ostensibly respected for the years he spent in English prisons, but he has in fact been marginalized by over the lines of church and state. Not everything, however, in this world was as Cardinal Cullen would have wished. Under him, according to the Cambridge Social History of Modern Ireland, the church tried to provide an institutional and moral framework to keep Catholics and Protestants socially, spatially, and sexually separate at every stage of life. The balls being attended by Mrs. John Wiley would almost certainly have been mixed Catholic Protestant affairs, and Farrell's folk depicts an easy intimacy between the two religions at a middle class level. This would accord with the reconciliatory religious scenarios being sketched by Bram Stoker in The Snake's Past, as well as in his non fiction pronouncements. Now, Irish Catholic priests were satirized in two very, by two very different writers in the first half of the 20th century. George Bernard Shaw's 1904 play, John's Beloved Ireland, features an exchange between Father Dempsey and the Englishman Tom Broadbent, in which the priest, in attempting to demonstrate that he is above Irish superstition, reveals that he is, in fact, as ignorant as his superstitious parishioners. While such satire might have been expected from rationalists of Irish Protestant backgrounds, such as Shaw, that of Patrick Kavanagh in his 1948 novel, Terry Flynn, is deadlier by virtue of being closer to the truth of Irish life in the first few decades of the 20th century. Cornelius's declaration in John Bill's Other Island, <coughs> Father Dempsey is a priest of the parish of St. Robert, what would he be doing with the theory? Would no doubt have seemed funny to the London intelligentsia of today. But it's unlikely to be nothing to the Irish countryside. Capitalist priest, on the other hand, jumps up the pages of Terry Flynn with an almost startling realism for 
anyone who actually experienced Catholicism in Ireland in that era. What makes the contrast even more interesting is that George Renshaw's work is central to the dialogue, and Kavanagh, of humble origin in the Irish countryside, enjoyed a long friendship with the then Catholic Archbishop of Dublin, the former little Dr. John Charles McQuaid. The key section is as follows, quote, with Terry it was different. He believed of all the people in the parish, he alone took religion seriously. Too seriously, for being serious meant that it was not integrated into his ordinary life. When the ordinary man went to confession, he rambled on to list of harmless sins, ignoring all the ones that would have filled Terry with remorse. When Terry went to confession on Saturday, he had the misfortune, contrary to his own welfare and arrangements, to mention unusual sins. The confessor was the monk he had met on the road. What sins do you remember since your last confession, the monk asked? I read books, Father, Terry replied, before he had time to think. He knew it once he had made a mistake, but that started the monk off. What sort of books? Terry didn't want to admit he had only read school books and newspapers, and it would appear he'd be telling a lie if he didn't mention some books. So he said, Shaw, Father. He had never he had read about Shaw in the newspapers, but had never read a line of Shaw's. Have you a rosary? asked the Terry had knocked, he said, yes, Father, in the hope of getting out of the confessional as quickly as possible. He had made it awkward enough as it was. You should read the messenger of the Sacred Heart, said the confessor. Do you read the little messenger? Yes, Father. Continue to read it, my child. In that little book, you will find all the finest literature written by the greatest writers. And give up this man, show. <laughs> now, if the... I, I remember seeing a play this and Mr. Delvey and recounting the scene my mother afterwards, and she could never quite get over this concept of give up this time show. <laughs> yeah, if the predominant note of much of the literature of post-independent Ireland is of disillusionment with its twin pillars of church and state, then those who belonged to those pillars had to face up to the fact that the new dispensation was not producing outstanding Catholic writers, and ironically had to depend on English Catholic writers in channeling Catholicism in opposition to the filthy modern tide of Yeats's imagination. This was symbolized by the fact that the commemorative volume of the Eucharistic Congress, held with great country in Dublin 1932, was written by G.K. Chesterton, you, you see it up there on the slide. In it, Chesterton states, quote, nobody who's been in Dublin for a week, as I have during the Eucharistic Congress, can doubt that Ireland is passionately religious, and especially that the Irish populace is passionately religious. Oh. A modern critic has said that in buying his ticket to attend the Eucharistic Congress, he, Chesterfield, felt he had truly purchased a ticket for Christendom, a Christendom much larger than Europe. While Chesterfield's description of the Ireland of that era was essentially accurate, it is nevertheless significant that the book commemorating his greatest religious set-piece event was written by an Englishman, albeit one broadly sympathetic to Ireland. It is also significant that when Father John A. O'Brien from Notre Dame University came to write Giants of the Faith, published in 1960, towards the end of the period of unquestioned Irish supremacy in Irish life, the Chico Chesterton, described as God's Crusader, is one of the six Catholic giants included, as is his fellow Englishman, John Henry Newman, by contrast, no Irish figure featured. The other outstanding Catholic writer who enjoyed a wide following in post independence Ireland was the Anglo Irish figure of the Laird of Bella. 
Sognos Logistica Villa, the chalk on the term Chester Balochian to describe it. <laughs> to Bellock, the survival of Catholicism in Ireland was a phenomenon essentially miraculous in character. And to him, the Irish race alone of all Europe has maintained a perfect integrity and has kept serene without internal reactions and without their consequent disturbances, the soul of Europe, which is the Catholic Church, and the soul of Europe is the Thomasized. It is not surprising that Tristan were popular in the Ireland of their day. Indeed, that popularity dated from the very foundation of the Irish Free State. Arthur E. Cleary's The Philosophy of Sanity of Chesterton Bellock was published in the Jesuit Quarterly Studies in December of 1922. As his title indicates, Cleary, a UCD professor and occasional Republican politician, argues for the essential sanity of the Englishman, Chesterton Bellock, in opposition to the Irish figures of Wilde and Shaw. Quote, for the end of citizenship is sanity, as the end of saintliness is salvation. And citizenship is the guardian of holiness, as holiness is the first requisite of sanity." Unquote. Given the intertwined nationalism and religious fervor of the newly established state, it's significant that an Irish commentator sets up two English writers as saying, in opposition to two Irish Protestant writers who, if not the obverse of saying, are certainly mistaken in their beliefs. A while clearly says, yet his system stood for frivolity, when it did not stand for something much worse. While Sean was fighting the same battles, but attacking from an opposite quarter. I should like to express my gratitude to my son, Stephen Murray, for bringing material on Chesterton Bellock in the Irish context, as well as follower of Brian's Giants of Fate, to my attention and for sharing with me valuable aspects of his doctoral research. Now, among the admirers, uh, among Bellock's admirers in that year was John Charles McQuaid, whose term as Archbishop of Dublin, 1940-72, would, together with that of Paul Cullen, century earlier, bookend the period of maximum Catholic dominance over Irish life. As Dean of Studies of Blackrock College, Dublin, in the 1920s and 30s, McQuaid was fond of quoting Chesterton, his Lepanto especially, dim drums throbbing in the hills half heard, etc. One of his pupils, therefore, priest, commented, imagine the effect on young boys, indeed. Like Colin before him, Rome made an immense impact on Quaid. It is easy to see the appeal of Chesterton Bellock to the influential Dublin churchman. Firstly, Bellock was in the words of the Jesuit Hugh Kelly in the 1941 article, first and last a Catholic. The Catholic faith has entered profoundly into his mind and character and formation. He also challenged the attitude of superiority for Protestantism. This in turn led to Bellock's radical reappraisal of English history, which emphasized the continuity of the Roman Empire through the agency of the Catholic Church, the Southern Reformation, not as liberation, but as the great tragedy of European history. This provided an intellectual opinion for the Roman Church, espoused by Cullen and McQuaid, that no Irish Catholic of the year, no, I'm sorry, no Irish Catholic writer of the year could or would attempt. It helped, of course, that Bella Chesterton was popular. Two articles by Francis Fyton, which appeared shortly after Bellock's death in an Irish Jesuit journal, quoted booksellers in Edinburgh and London to the effect that both writers headed their best of the lists. It is significant that the question posed 
in the title of one of Feynman's articles after that of who, question mark, is not renounced by its author, as these two Catholic giants would have no true successors in terms of scope or sale. Scale. It is also ironic that perhaps the outstanding study, outstanding critical study of Catholic writing by an Irish author of the era, Mariah Cross, imaginary patterns in a group of Catholic writers, published in 1954, around the time of Feynman's articles, was written by Congress of Mariah, whose relationship with the Catholic Church was at best ambiguous. At this point, it seems to be obvious that Catholic Ireland did not alone not produce specifically Catholic writers, but had to rely on the likeness of champions, English Catholic writers, to articulate the ethos of the newly established free state later the Republic of Ireland. The obvious question is why? The answer to that, I think, lies in the nature of the Roman Catholicism established by Paul the Cullen in the mid-19th century. However, the place Cullen context is necessary to examine the rapprochement which had taken place between the Catholic hierarchy and the British government more than half a century before Cullen's appointment. In 1793, a delegation of the leading Irish bishops met the Lord Lieutenant and presented a loyal petition to the king. The first such meeting in the century, it was a watershed of relations between the government and the Irish Catholic hierarchy, who had enlisted the aid of the statesman and author Edmund Burke. The goals of the bishop, the bishops was the sorry, the goal of the bishops was the establishment of a Catholic seminary. The bishops' petition played on the role that an educated Orthodox conservative Catholic clergy would play in the fight against spread of French radicalism in Ireland. In 1795, a bill was passed establishing the Catholic College of Manute in the London Parliament. Propaganda fide, the Roman congregation with overall responsibility for the Irish Church, informed its bishops that the new college should promote loyalty to temporary rulers. Manute, in their eyes, was to be everything that revolutionary Europe is not. It was to be moral orthodox and, above all, loyal to its lawful national government. In September 1795, uh, Manute opens its doors to the first 50 students. A conservative alliance of church and state had been formed to combat radical ideas, an alliance in which Irish governments would later slot seamlessly after independence. Indeed, the fear of ideas which gave rise to this alliance predated the French, if not the American Revolution, although it provided the impetus for its realization in the 1790s. Carver College, which you see in the slide here, founded in 1782 for the education of Catholic youth. In 1791, a new aim of training Catholic clergy was added. This marked the beginning of Catholic boarding schools in Ireland, seen as necessary because the children of wealthier families had been sent abroad to be educated. According to a mid-20th century rector of Montaigne, quote, the long contact with French schools and French thought of the age of the Enlightenment was definitely unfavorable to Catholic ideas in education, unquote. Even the Protestants understood. Lord Carlo said in 1790 that the principal Catholics would prefer Carlo College to France, to which they had hitherto sent their children, to preserve them from being tainted with deistical principles. In other words, fear of the ideas of the Enlightenment was the initial driving force behind the establishment of Catholic boarding schools in Ireland. Fear of French revolutionary ideas would bring the British government on board. Catholic emancipation followed in 1829, 
the way it was opened, the introduction, uh, somewhat later, uh, of Paul Cullen's form of Roman Catholicism. Now, Cullen was born in 1803 into a family of prosperous tenant farmers, precisely the class that had formed the key constituency of the Catholic Church in its later period of dominance. With an ex an uncle executed in 1798, and a father who had narrowly escaped the same fate, he may have imbued his anti-British and anti-Protestant feelings at an early age, but he was nevertheless educated at a Quaker boarding school from 10 to 15, at which point he entered Carver College, having already impressed church authorities with his ability. In 1819, at the impression of the age of 16, Cullen was sent to the Urban College of the Congrazio de Propaganda Fide in Rome. Cullen Barr's entry on Cullen in the Dictionary of Irish Biography sums up the formative influence of Rome on him. Quote, Cullen arrived in Rome on 25 November 1820, and in many ways he never left. He fell in love with paper Rome, its liturgical grandeur, and its architecture. Unquote. After 20 years as the rising star in Rome, Cullen was appointed Archbishop of Armagh with a brief to unify the tempestuous Irish Church. <coughs> Cullen came armed with instructions to convene the Synod held at Ferris in August 1850, which laid the foundations of Cullen's transformation of Irish Catholicism, a devotional revolution of a specifically Roman kind. Quote, sodalities were to be established among the faithful. Good Catholic books were to be circulated, and the books and tracts of the proselytizers prohibited. Public disputations with non-Catholics were forbidden, and Catholic faithful were exhorted to have no discussions with non-Catholics about religion. Quote. In the words of a recent study, the Synod marked the full-throated introduction of Tridentine Roman Catholicism in Ireland, which also states the remarkable popular piety of the 20th century had its roots not in the penal era, but in Cullen's. Cullen had therefore at the very outset established a form of Catholicism that would dominate Ireland for the next century. Cullen was trans translated to the even more powerful post of Archbishop of Dublin in 1852, the same position that would be held by William and John Charles McQuaid in the mid-20th century. The Cambridge Social History of Modern Ireland has noted how, under Cullen, the parish became the centre of Irish Catholic life, and new devotions, mostly of Roman origin, were encouraged. Quote, Cullen achieved change on such a scale that the use of the term revolution much, must surely be justified. At one level, this church was an outstanding success. United, disciplined, and coherent, it ruled Catholic Ireland with a mixture of persuasion and ruthlessness that proved highly effective as it was overwhelmed by modernity and scandal in the second half of the 20th century. It is reflecting literature of the period, but often in negative fashion. Its accolade seal was, his, was that its efficiency did not win the hearts and minds of many of the Irish intelligentsia of Europe. While English and French writers, reacting against the materialism of the age, might find spiritual refuge in Catholicism, their Irish counterparts tended to revolt against the conformity of its Irish equivalent. What is remarkable is the similarity of the paths trodden by so many Irish writers at the time from a youthful embrace of pietism to an adult rejection of religion that had come to see cold in the formulae. The scholar and critic Eamor Nolan sees later Irish writers as addicted to naturalism as a way to critique the crowd mentality of the formal religion 
especially its Roman Catholic version, and supposedly nourished. Certainly, Joyce's portrait and Farrell's accused by Cease are examples of this naturalism. Noting that the colonite model remained largely intact for a century after his death in 1878, the Cambridge Social History of Modern Ireland identifies anti-intellectualism as a key component of the pervasive culture of clericalism which he established. Colin does not appear ever to have read a novel, and the only secular play we know for certain that he attended was performed by the Deaf and Dumb Institute of Dublin and projected the defeat of the Italian national seal Garibaldi uh, to the devil's chagrin. Colin greatly enjoyed it. It is ironic in his opposition to Italian revolutionary politics, which he had witnessed in the little year of his youth and informed his later obsessed anti-feminism, should have provided the inspiration for the Gadfly, the most comprehensible anti-Catholic of Irish novels. Colin's aversion was based not just on the bloodshed, but on the free thinking which unrelates to revolutionary fervor and the threat it posed to the authority of the church. It's no wonder that he sought great success to create a religious and educational framework which would produce educated but obedient Catholics, men and women who would become solid professionals without straying into a realm of metaphysical speculation which might endanger their souls. Indeed, it is now accepted that Ireland lacked, quote, a Catholic philosophical tradition in public discourse, unquote. Hierarchical approval for the establishment of the National University of Ireland in 1908 was contingent on it not having a theological faculty. Even religious thought was to be controlled. Now, Cullen's formula worked for over a century until during the last decade of John Charles McQuaid's uh, period as Archbishop of Dublin, the modern world broke through its defences in a wonderfully archaic decade of the 1960s. It also worked in reverse, creating a distinctive literature by Catholic writers, reacting against and often repudiating its regimentation and line of control. As an example of just how much the world changed during McQuaid's episcopate, is provided by a letter he wrote to the Irish Times in 1934 as president of Blackrock College, protesting at a decision by an athletics body to allow women and men to compete in the same meetings. Quote, I protest at this un-Catholic and un-Irish decision. I, hear, I hereby assure you that no boy from my college will take part in any athletic meeting controlled by your organization at which women will compete no matter what attire they may adopt. In 1934, such a pronouncement from a rising star of the Catholic Church might have been taken seriously. Thirty years later, it would appear visible even to many of the Catholic faithful. Post-independence Ireland has been described as a Catholic habitus, a way of thinking and acting in conformity with the systematic view of the world which permeated all social classes. It is arguable that an important exception to this conformity lay in the output of some significant Irish writers whom I mentioned in that paper, who not alone did not incorporate a Catholic theological view of the work into their output, but often reckoned satire, if not outright hostility, towards it, and thus prefigured downfall of this world, a sort of Catholic propaganda on some days. Thank you.